Today in Canadian History for June the 21st, I'm Joe Barima. In recognition of June 21st being National Aboriginal Day, today we have a special extended edition of our series. On this day back in 1889, First Nation leaders of the Lesser Slave Lake area signed a government-created document called Treaty 8. The treaty affected many First Nations groups and involved a large swath of land, approximately 840,000 square kilometers. This massive tract of land contained parts of northern Alberta, B.C., Saskatchewan, and also a chunk of the Northwest Territories. Jarvis Brownlee is an associate professor in the History Department at the University of Manitoba. June 21, 1899 was the first signing of a Treaty 8 document, and it occurred at Lesser Slave Lake. It was a number of people of the Cree, Beaver, and Chippewyan nations that agreed to make treaty with Canada. June 21st, as I said, was the first signing, and a number of, the, of other groups signed that year. There were, there were three treaty commissioners for Treaty 8 in 1899, and they actually split up after that and went to, to different groups so they could try to cover the whole area they had scheduled for themselves that year. And so a number of other groups signed that year. The next year, another commissioner was sent out to meet with the groups that had been missed, um, that they'd originally scheduled to meet with. And so another bunch of groups signed in 1900. And then there were other adhesions over the years. In fact, um, I don't know if you know this, but there was there was an adhesion in the year 2000. Yeah, so McLeod Lake First Nation, which is a group of uh, people of the Sakani Nation in uh, in British Columbia, they they had started negotiations, I think, in the 1980s um, to 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 undergo treaty with government, and and they finally BC and the federal government and McLeod Lake First Nation agreed uh, together that they they would join Treaty Eight. So it went on for a century. The terms were not that complicated. It was modeled on the, the number of treaties of the 1870s. And, and it was intended, you know, they'd been talking about making a treaty with people in these areas for, for quite some time, actually. And, uh, you know, in some ways, ever since they had made the treaties in the 1870s with, you know, groups in the, in the South. And, and they always talked about this treaty as covering, you know, First Nations north of Treaty 6 and and Treaty 7, mostly. And um, so, so it was modeled on, on the numbered treaties. So it had annuities, an initial payment to um, everyone who signed, and reserves. Um, one unusual feature, though, was that they, they also made provision for people to hold land individually instead of collectively as a reserve. So, so individuals it would have been mostly men, um, could, could choose to receive 160 acres to hold for themselves instead of as part of a reserve. What are the motivating factors behind Treaty 8? Well, the short answer is the Klondike Gold Rush. But in fact, of course, it, it's really more complicated. Treaty 8 covers the land not where the Klondike Gold Rush was happening, it actually doesn't cover that land, but the land on the way there. And the reason that they 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 had actually looked at making a, uh, a treaty in these areas in 1891, but um, the, but the other motivating so they, they were there had been trouble 
because prospect, you know, these sort of gold seekers who didn't know the country very well were coming overland partly from, you know, from the ocean, but they were also coming overland from the east, mostly from Edmonton, and traveling through the territories of various First Nations on the way, very, very rugged land, and they often didn't behave very well. They, they shot the horses of the First Nations people there. They shot their dogs. They destroyed their bear traps. They sometimes stole food caches. These were all you know, basically the active enemies in, in the eyes of First Nations people. So they were, and they, and they also trapped and shot animals on the way there. So they were actually, you know, using resources that First Nations saw as their own. And these people had already been experiencing a lot of food shortages anyway. So even more competition for scarce food was literally a threat to their survival. So there had been, there'd been a lot of incidents you know, near you know, conflicts with prospectors and threats from First Nations to take revenge or to drive white people out. So that's why the federal government finally decided to make a treaty. The First Nations had been asking for a treaty for about 20 years anyway, because they had been experiencing a lot of economic difficulty. I mentioned the depletion of game, but there had also been um, a collapse in fur prices. So they were having trouble, you know, getting earning enough to the fur trade to meet their needs. Could you tell us anything about the individuals behind the negotiations? Were there any figures that stand out? Well, one is uh, a, a Cree leader named Chief Kinoseyu, and he had he lived in the Lesser Slave Lake area, and he had got together in 1890, actually, with he he you know helped. Uh, get a gathering together of, of First Nations in that area. This is We're talking about the, the areas of the Mackenzie River, the, the Athabasca River, and the Peace River. And they got together and held a meeting about treaty and agreed that most of them wanted to make a treaty and um, had a letter sent to the government. So he's one, and he was one of the signatories um, on, that, on that date, June 21st, 1899. He's one figure. Um, the treaty commissioners included David Laird, who was a very experienced treaty negotiator. He'd, he'd negotiated a number of the previous treaties before on behalf of the federal government. Oh, there's one other person I, I should mention, and that's Father Lacombe. He was, a, he was a missionary in the area, very well-known and well-liked among Aboriginal peoples because he was seen as having been there for a long time, showing real concern for their welfare, you know, kind of sticking around. And so he was very respected and very influential and, and was seen by the government as having played a significant role in, in convincing First Nations to sign. As you say, it, it is pretty complicated, and it's also contested. You know, what, what are the implications, really, for First Nations, and what are the obligations on both sides? This is contest, contested to this day. But I would say that, it, uh, like other treaties, it created a relationship and a set of obligations between the Canadian government and a series of Aboriginal groups. And uh, under Canadian law, it, it meant that the First Nations who signed had given up their lands to Canada. That's how... But that's how Canadian law has tended to see um, treaties. But actually, in this case, um, 
uh, First Nations took their case to court. They 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 um, they asked the, the the government in the 1950s for a caveat on lands, and they said that they had never surrendered those lands. They were trying to hold up, you know, industrial development. And um, the court looked at the testimony of elders who'd been present at um, Treaty 8 and Treaty 11 and concluded that they clearly did not believe they'd given up land. So that's that right there shows um, really how unclear the process was. The, the, the commissioners left very little time for discussion at each place. They put the schedule in place, and then they were racing to try to to meet it, and in fact, uh, right off the bat, they were more than two weeks late. So um, I think it, it was left unclear. But it, but as far as the First Nations were concerned, it seems fairly clear that they weren't told they were giving up their land, and the signals that they got convinced them that that they weren't giving up their land because they were told they'd be able to keep hunting and fishing, and they wouldn't be confined on reserves, and they were told they wouldn't be taxed, at least. Uh, that's what the commissioner's report says. So, um, you know, the Canadian government thought it was getting title to the land, but First Nations didn't feel that they were giving up title. So in that sense, one of the ramifications is a, a very foundational disagreement about what the treaty meant. I, I would say that the treaty was in many ways, very representative of relations at the time. Um, I mentioned that the many of the First Nations involved had been wanting a treaty for a long time. They wanted the treaty because they wanted annuities. That was what they, they actually wanted. And they, they, they knew people in, in treaty areas who got you know their $5 annuity every year. That doesn't sound like much money, and of course today... It's it's worth very little, but actually at that time, um, five dollars paid for a, a family's basic needs from the traders. You know, the, the flour and tea or whatever they needed to buy, or or, or ammunition, trap trapping um, materials. Five dollars actually paid for their basic needs. And in the 1870s and 1880s, there was a world depression. And prices were actually decreasing, so the the value of the five dollar annuity was actually increasing during that time period. So those annuities were really worth something at that time. So, uh, oh, and the other thing I was going to say about how is this representative is is that the government assumed that it had a lot of power in the situation because they'd been receiving requests for a treaty for a long time. They, they were worried that the First Nations wouldn't sign, but at the same time, they they didn't leave much time for negotiation. They kind of assumed that they could get those signatures pretty quickly and and move on. And and you know they they more or less got away with that. There is one thing I was I was thinking about, and that is that um, I was thinking about what are all the ramifications of Treaty Eight and. That, well, there are just a few things. One, one is this caveat in court case I mentioned where they showed, or where at least the court decided that the evidence showed First Nations didn't believe they'd surrendered their land. That's really significant. That was overturned later, but it was overturned on a, on a point of law. Um, so that's, it's, it's still important. There was a big case around Treaty 8 with regard to taxation, 
called the Benoit case, where they decided um, the First Nations were arguing that they'd been promised they wouldn't be taxed, that they, they did lose that case. And the other thing about Treaty 8 is it covers the area that's now uh, subject to the massive tar sands projects. And um, it, it's one, it raises to me one of those questions about what the treaties mean and what, what was agreed to. And I think that uh, the federal government was very well aware that there was petroleum in the area, and it was one of the underlying motivations um, for making the. It was why they'd considered making the treaty in 1891. But uh, but First Nations could not have anticipated any kind of oil development, and especially not the tar sands, um, you know, which are you know even more environmentally destructive than ordinary oil production. And so. Um, I, you know, I think there is an interesting conversation that could be had about, you know, what the First Nations consented to in that treaty and what is now happening in those lands that, that really couldn't have been foreseen in 1899. All right. Well, let's, let's move on to two general questions related to our, our discussion. Um, we're, we're going to be airing this this episode on National Aboriginal Day, um, launched back in 1996. Uh, the, the official day is now fairly mature. Um, this is, I, I guess, maybe it's more of a personal question, but but do you, do you have any general thoughts on, on the concept of National Aboriginal Day? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think that I think that the idea of a National Aboriginal Day is a good one in many ways. I think it it has the potential, at least, to raise awareness of of Aboriginal people and and to create an occasion to you know celebrate what they've contributed to Canada, celebrate Aboriginal accomplishments. It also can, um, and I think to, at least to some extent, does create an occasion for Aboriginal people to get together themselves and just celebrate and um, and you know build community. And I think they do that. I'm not sure how much attention non-Aboriginal Canadians pay to it, and I guess that varies. But I think it's... it's I, I, like, I like the way that it provides some recognition. Um, but do you have any thoughts regarding on how First Nations history is currently approached in Canada? Is, is there anything else that, uh, in particular that you'd like to see addressed or, or maybe changed? Well... What I find as a university professor is that students, in many cases, arrive in my classes not knowing very much at all about First Nations history. So, you know, the biggest thing for me is that I would, it would be nice if more people knew more, just generally. And I think, I think my sense is that schools have really made an effort in many cases to, to teach students more about Aboriginal history. And, you know, we know that, you know, kids in, in school don't always absorb everything they're taught. So it's not always only for lack of trying. But um, I, I think some of what's happened, too, is that, is that there's this polarizing effect. You know, people either know about the residential schools and not much else. So they kind of know about Aboriginal people as, as victims of, uh, you know, of this terrible system, or they've received a sort of celebratory message about 
you know, about Aboriginal people and and how and and about Canada being, you know, better than the U.S. in its treatment of Aboriginal peoples. That Canada signed treaties and, you know, and has always been humane and so on. And um, these are very simplistic, you know, ways of looking at um, Aboriginal history. And I, I would really like to see more nuanced discussions. You know, we, we think of this as a treaty nation, and I, I, I like it that the treaties have such an important place in our thinking, but huge areas of Canada have not been surrendered under treaty, and um, I think that's just as important to know. As always, today is a day full of Canadian history. On this day back in 1957, Ellen Fairclough became the first woman to be appointed to the federal cabinet. On this day back in 1940, the Canadian Parliament passed the National Resources Mobilization Act, known to many as the Conscription Act. And as always, on this day we aired this episode of Today in Canadian History. Today in Canadian History is produced by CJSW at 90.9 FM in Calgary. The executive producers are Joe Barima and Mark Affeld. Original music is provided by the Fisk, Fletcher and May Trio. This series is not meant to be a definitive source on our past. Instead, we hope that it sparks a desire to learn more about our unique history. For more information on the series, or to recommend an event or moment, check out our website at cgswcom slash Today in Canadian History. Mm-hmm.